Continuing Education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Oi. There we go. Hello. I am Justin Burr, joined tonight by Dr. Krista Chumanchu and our fantastic producer with her first episode, Dr. Jelena Castillo. Say hi, Jelena. Hello, hello. Uh, we are so happy to, to have you. What do you think? You got to see the first first episode, how the sausage was made. What do you think? It was very interesting to be behind the curtain. It'll be weird to hear myself on the car ride to work next time. <laughs> Preach. Uh, well, we are excited to have you join the Cribsiders team. Uh, our guest tonight is pediatric endocrinologist, Dr. Juanita Hodatz. She discusses puberty, including normal puberty, delayed, precocious puberty, some lab workout. It was great. But before we dive into that content, hey, Chris, can you tell us about the show? Yes, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer and linking questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. Today, we have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Juanita Hodex. Juanita Hodex is a pediatric endocrinologist at Seattle Children's Hospital and co-director of the Seattle Children's Gender Clinic. She completed her residency and fellowship in Providence, Rhode Island, and has been passionate about gender care since early in her career. She is currently engaged in clinical care in Seattle, as well as Missoula, Montana, and also dedicates her time to research and education. Today, we will learn about puberty, normal puberty, how to identify puberty if it is precocious or delayed, and how to localize any issues based on labs and imaging workup. Jelena, what do you think about the episode? Are people going to enjoy it? I think we're going to put some glamour in Tamar. Ah, oh, glamour and Tanner. Tanner stage fun. <laughs> All right. Dr. Juanita Hodatz, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you. Uh, this is fantastic. Thanks for coming on. Welcome to the Gribsiders. Thanks so much for having me. Because we're an informal group, we'd like to call you by your first name, Juanita. Is that okay? Yes, of course. We are very grateful. We're, we're a fun uh, first name basis group. And I would love to, to know you a little bit better. We've already kind of shared that we have some shared uh, background being connected to Providence, Rhode Island. But do you mind telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, maybe a one-liner about yourself and something you enjoy outside of medicine? Sure. Um, so I am a pediatric endocrinologist. Um, I am also a uh, wife to an amazing husband. Um, I have two small children. I also have a dog whose name is Max Hodax, who I also am obsessed with. And I enjoy spending time outdoors. I live in Seattle in the Pacific Northwest and enjoy all things nature, hiking, um, going to the beach, things like that. So that's me. What type of dog is, is is Max? Max is a pit bull, but she's like a small pit bull. She's oh. very cuddly. Ah, got it. And got it. in addition to Seattle, you also do some work in Montana too. Is that correct? Yes, that is correct. Um, I go out to Missoula, Montana, um, every three months or so um, to uh, yeah to see patients out there as part of my job. 
That sounds great. I have heard wonderful things about Montana. I have a friend who actually grew up in Ireland, has a very Irish accent, and tells a story about how she was introducing herself and said, I grew up in Ireland. My parents are Irish. Um, I spent the summer in Montana, and I'm just happy to meet people. That was her, like, fun fact. And everyone's like, no, Montana? What was it like? What's Montana? Um, and she tells that story a lot, and I really like it. That's, That's a good story. My question is, um, so a lot of times we ask for book recommendations, which you're free to give, but um, I, you know, I'm not like Justin, who happens to read every single book that people suggest. So I'm going to ask, uh, is there anything that you've really enjoyed lately that you want to share with our, with our listening audience, like a really great TV show or a small pamphlet that's easy to read? I don't know. Is there any? <laughs> <laughs> Media um, consumption. <laughs> well... Oh man, there's several things, but I do actually have a book recommendation yeah. that's not, it's maybe a little bit of a different type of book re recommendation, but it's called Youology, like Y-O-U-ology. Um, it is a puberty guide that was recently published for the A by the AAP. Um, so it felt very relevant to this um, this episode. Um, but it was published. Um, oh my gosh, you have Jelena, producer, yes. has the episode has, has the book right on air. Amazing. Um, that was perfect. So yeah, it it just came out, published by the AAP, written by three physicians who are amazing. Um, and it is like just the best puberty guide I have ever seen. Um, it's geared towards really like the kind of tween, you know, preteen age group. Um, it's very inclusive. It's really like, you know, written in their language. Um, and we just got a bunch to give out to kids in our clinic. And it's um, I would highly recommend it uh, to everyone. <laughs> That's Very amazing. Cool. I will check it out. I will probably grab one for our clinic. And uh, Jelena, I'm so impressed. Ready with the, the reference immediately. <laughs> well, you might be able to scalp that because Amazon says it's out of stock right now. Oh, oh no. It what, is available oh, on the AAP, AAP website. website. That's uh, what you got to yes. do. You got to know where to look. Yes. Uh, <laughs> excellent. One of the questions that is sometimes a tough question, but I really love to hear from our very esteemed guests is about a failure or a favorite failure. I think something in medicine, we we fail a lot in medicine. And I think there's a culture sometimes where people are socialized to not really share and kind of have this, not just imposter syndrome, but, you know, really preventing, um, demonstrating vulnerability, which is, I think, one of the biggest humanistic parts of medicine. Would love to hear if you have um, a story in medicine or out about maybe a failure and what you, you learned from it or how it's shaped you. Um, you know, I, I have several failures. It's very hard to choose just one. I think, um, you know, I feel like my sort of, uh, like first biggest failure that I, I can really think of is, um, or that comes to mind is, is actually, you know, in the process of applying to medical school. Um, you know, there, I know, like applying to medical school is such a, kind of like a crapshoot and is a huge process. And, you know, there's a lot of failures, I think, in that process. And I just, um, you know, the, the medical school that I uh, really wanted to go to, I did not get accepted to. And um, I think in that moment, it felt like uh, that was kind of the hardest, you know, like, how is I going to overcome that? And, and I think that just in the end, it worked out so well. I, you know, I met my husband in medical school. I met so many great friends through medical school and residency, and I just couldn't imagine life having been any other way. And so 
yeah, I think, I don't know, that's just kind of the first one that comes to mind. Yeah. And I, thank you for sharing that because I know, uh, again, we've had so many wonderful, incredibly successful people have those similar stories. And, and you know, I think I, I share a similar uh, story and it's uh, important. And I think it's nice to, to hear and is also always just reassuring that there's so many wonderful life paths that the the small ones that seem very important uh, at the time often do not lead to uh, complete doom, uh, <laughs> despite sometimes uh, convincing ourselves, or at least it's I do at times. So. Yes. Um, all right. Well, why don't we dive into some content yeah. and um, start talking about some some patient care? And so. We have a, a case for you today from our uh, wonderful producer, uh, Jelena, a, ca- a case from Cashlot Children's Hospital, uh, patient Coleman. Uh, so Coleman is a 14-year-old healthy male presenting to the pediatrician's office for a well-child visit with the mother. Henry, or Henry Coleman, he's a short, shy teen, quiet during most of his visit while his mother relates his health habits, no major concerns. You finish the interview, ask to step out, speak to uh, Henry Coleman alone. You ask him about school, he opens, he has few friends, but he's bullied because he's short and he's often not pit for sports and gym. So this is something that is bothering him. He comments no ability to grow any facial hair. He's concerned because he notices that his male peers are growing and outgrowing him. On his growth curve, sure enough, his height's in the third percentile. And with a chaperone GU exam, uh, you notice that uh, some small testes and maybe even you have the orchiometer and you you feel like it's about three cc's. Uh, and uh, giving on a Tanner stage, he's, he's still at about one. So we have a, a 13, 14-year-old male uh, that does not seem to have hit puberty yet. Can you just kind of start talking about what is puberty? What are pediatricians looking for in determining puberty? Um, and kind of going just the, the the broad puberty talk that you typically give to, to parents. Yeah. So, um, you know, so generally when I'm kind of talking to parents and, and kids, um, I describe puberty as sort of the process of going from having more of a kid's body to having more of an adult's body. Um, and so for people who have testicles, um, you know, those changes generally involve the testicles growing and starting to produce the hormone testosterone, which then causes these other puberty changes like uh, increased body hair, pubic hair, body odor, or stinky armpits. And then later on in puberty, um, you'll get kind of a growth spurt, things like facial hair, voice deepening, um, those kind of things that we typically associate more with with adults. And then for people with ovaries, they have sort of different changes through through puberty. Um, So for people with ovaries, the ovaries start to make estrogen, um, which leads to changes including breast development um, and then also that growth spurt and eventually um, they'll get periods. Excellent. And well, I was going to say, you know, when um, are we, let's say, what what are we looking for? If, let's say I know that between the ages of say seven and fourteen, you know, I need to be doing a a puberty exam and a puberty check in. Are there specific physical exams? Are there specific uh, objective data that I'm looking for in addition to reported, you know, breast development or CNP armpits, like you mentioned? Yes, absolutely, and and definitely doing, um, you know, doing a Tanner staging exam or a physical exam to look for um, for puberty stages is super important. You know, it should happen every year. Yeah, between 
seven to 14 or kind of between seven to when puberty is, is complete at least. Um, because, you know, often patient report is not, you know, they may not always know the signs to look out for. And so, um, it is important to get that, that full physical exam. So for, um, and I think it's also important to think about kind of the difference between puberty and adrenarche because some of these changes happen with adrenarche. So things like pubic hair, the stinky armpits, um, acne, you know, those, um, all happen during adrenarche when the adrenal gland starts to make some of these, um, these androgens. Um, and that, you know, often happens at the same time as, as, um, kind of what we call true puberty, but it may happen at different times. And so sometimes you may have a kid who's starting to go through adrenarche, um, but they may not actually be going through true puberty. And so sometimes, you know, if puberty is happening at a different time, that can sometimes get missed if kids are having these adrenarche signs, um, as well. So the biggest, um, you know, the main kind of physical exam signs to look out for, for true puberty, for a kid that has testicles, the main thing to look for is, the increase in testicular volume. So that's where that orchidometer comes in handy. Um, I know, you know, as a pediatric endocrinologist, like I carry this around in my bag with me 24 seven, but I know that's not the case for most people, but that really is the best way um, to know kind of what stage in puberty somebody is in. Um, and that's usually the very first sign of puberty as well. Um, after the testicles start to increase, then, you know, they may start to develop some pubic hair, um, some uh, enlargement in the size of the penis, um, and then eventually kind of having that growth spurt and those other changes that we talked about. And then for somebody with ovaries, the very first sign of true puberty is breast development, um, usually starting with breast buds that start kind of just beneath where the areola is and then kind of expanding from there. And so um, so that would be the main sign to, to look for on your exam. And then as far as things like Tanner staging or the sexual maturity ratings, are these things that wildly useful in, in the field of endocrinology or something that we teach medical students and really, I will admit in my practice as a primary care physician, I feel like one to two is important. And then when you're, you're essentially when you're finished with puberty or the ones that I'm thinking, the two to three, a lot of times residents will be like, I don't know, do you think it's two or three? And, and I admit a lot of times I'm like, I don't know that it matters that much. We're, we're progressing. Um, can you kind of walk us through what's the importance of Tanner staging? Is it something that we should mm -hmm. be doing and how uh, how should we kind of approach Tanner staging? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's generally true, to be honest, that like knowing the difference between one and two is super important. You know, knowing what Tanner stage five looks like is super important. You know, and then two through four is kind of like having a general sense is important, but you know, most of the time knowing specifically as a patient is exactly Tanner three or exactly Tanner four, most of the time it doesn't, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Um, you know, when we think about puberty, um, it's important to think about the, the typical timing of puberty. So for people with ovaries, the kind of typical timing of puberty starting is between ages eight and 12. And then for people with testicles, the typical timing of starting is between age nine and age 14. And so, but the other thing that's important is the tempo of puberty. So generally, puberty happens um, over the course of two to three years. Um, and so I would say the time when like the specific stages matter is if it seems like somebody is having a really rapid tempo puberty, like, you know, you see them at one point and they haven't started puberty at all. And then you see them again six months later and they're already like 10 or four or five, you know, that would be much faster than we typically expect and, you know, would kind of bring up some concerns that there could be something going on that, you know, that is not typical. Um, 
But, um, but generally, if you have somebody who's kind of progressing through puberty, you know, over time, then yeah, in the one moment, does it really matter if they're Tanner three or Tanner four, you know, not, not totally. Um, it's more if you're kind of concerned that there's an issue, like if things are moving too quickly. So you're talking a little bit about tempo, but you also gave us sort of age-ish ranges that you, we should be sort of seeing puberty happen. So, you know, I, I have a lot of patient, parents worry about like early puberty or late puberty. Is, is this, are these things that we need to be worried about or are, are, can we just be reassured? And if we do have early or late puberty, what are the things that we should be concerned about? Yeah, that is a great question. I think it's always, um, you know, it's important to know the ranges for kind of when typical puberty happens. And if you have somebody whose puberty is happening outside of those typical ages, um, you know, it's important to at least like think about being concerned. Um, a lot of times, um, even if puberty is happening outside of those ranges, it still can be sort of like a variant of normal. Um, but it also can be, you know, something more concerning that's happening. So, um, you know, so I think that for most kids, if they are having early or late puberty, it is worth some, you know, some amount of evaluation to make sure that there isn't something more concerning happening. Um, you know, I think for this, like kind of going back to the case specifically, um, for a kid who is 14 and hasn't, you know, is still Tanner stage one on exam. So the testicles are less than four cc's, um, you know, sounds like hasn't really had pubic hair developing, hasn't really shown any signs of puberty. Um, you know, this is what we would call delayed puberty, um, since he is 14 and hasn't started having these changes. Um, and so the things that we would think of, um, for delayed puberty, um, you know, the most common thing is is what we call constitutional delay in puberty and growth. So just for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, um, kind of genetic, like that's, you know, everybody in their family has late puberty, or sometimes like um, kids who are uh, undernourished can have later puberty. You know, there's a variety of reasons where that puberty can happen later and just be still sort of normal. Um, but then we also have kids who have things like hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, where there's a problem with their pituitary gland not being able to make LH and FSH, which is what kind of starts the whole puberty process. Um, or people can have issues with their testicles where their testicles aren't able to make, um, you know, to make testosterone, and that can lead to delayed puberty as well. And maybe I would love to quickly follow on that. And then you mentioned some of the hormones and what puberty really is. Can you kind of go through that process and take us back to med school and, and walk us through the physiology of what is puberty? So it's all about the hormone pathways, which we talk about all the time in endocrinology. Um, so puberty really starts in the hypothalamus. Um, so uh, gonadotropin releasing hormone um, is um, is a hormone that uh, when it starts to be released in a pulsatile fashion, that is like the signal for puberty to start. You know, I think kind of above that there, it, it's still, I would say, generally not fully known, like what leads to the time of when that pulsatile GnRH yeah, it starts to happen. There's a, you know, there's a lot of research being done in like different genes that, you know, that potentially can control that potentially environmental factors that can control that. Um, there's a lot of different theories. And I think we still don't fully know for sure, like why, you know, even if you think about those different ranges we talked about for puberty, they're pretty big ranges. And so um, we don't fully know like why it happens, you know, at different um, ages for different people. Um, but that pulsatile release of the the gonadotropin releasing hormone or GnRH um, is the first thing. Um, and so that triggers the pituitary gland to um, start releasing luteinizing hormone or LH and follicle stimulating hormone or FSH. 
And then those hormones um, will uh, go to either the testicles or the ovaries and stimulate the, the gonads to produce either testosterone or estrogen. And then it's the testosterone and the estrogen that are leading, leading to those physical changes that you're actually seeing in the body. And so, you know, when there are disorders of puberty, like you can have issues in, in any of those steps. Um, there can be a problem, you know, with the hypothalamus and pituitary gland where you're not making LH or FSH or you're starting to produce those too early. Or there can be problems with the testicles and ovaries, um, testicles or ovaries, where you're either not able to make testosterone or estrogen or you start making them too early. So one question I have is, you know, can we go, I just want to go back just a little bit talking about, you said delayed puberty. I sort of want to know exactly what is the definition of delayed puberty and are there other defined terms that we need to clarify as we move forward talking about this? Yeah. Um, so delayed puberty, um, is the, um, is having no signs of puberty, um, after the age of 14 in somebody with testicles or after the age of 12 to 13 in somebody with ovaries, the, um, for, yeah, for girls, the definition is, uh, you know, potentially different depending on the source that you look at. Um, I usually use the age of 13. So, um, and so we're mainly really talking about the, um, you know, the signs of true puberty and not adrenarchy. So, um, for girls, it would be no breast development by the age of 13. And then for boys, um, no testicular enlargement by the age of 14. Perfect. And so for our friend Henry Coleman here, who is at 14, and, and we feel confident in our testicular exam that, that he is a, a Tanner stage one, um, and so we are concerned about possible delayed puberty, what are the next steps? You know, what if, let's say we're, uh, you know, trying to do as much as we can in Missoula, Montana, before you can come help us out, uh, what is the differential we're thinking about and what are the uh, diagnostic net steps for us to take? Yeah. So, um, you know, the first thing to, that is really important to know is, um, you know, is this potentially an issue with the pituitary gland or is this potentially an issue with the testicles? And so, um, really the only way that you're going to be able to determine that is by checking blood work. Um, so, you know, in endocrinology, we use labs for pretty much everything and it gives us so much information. Um, so the first step would would really be to check those different hormone levels we talked about. So um, checking an LH level, an FSH level, and a testosterone level. There's no way to actually measure GnRH levels, so we don't do that. So it's really just the LH, FSH, and testosterone. Usually we recommend checking these levels first thing in the morning because in early puberty, there is a diurnal um, pattern to when these hormones are released. So the LH and testosterone levels especially will be higher in the morning compared to later in the day. Um, so by getting labs in the morning, you have, you know, the best chance of kind of catching the, the elevation of those levels if puberty has started. Um, and, um, by, um, by looking at those results, it can really tell you if, you know, kind of where the issue is. So if all of the hormone levels are low, then that would make me think that, um, you know, the pituitary gland just hasn't been sort of turned on, um, because it's not making LH or FSH yet. And so therefore the testicles haven't been stimulated. If there's a problem with the testicles, then usually what we see is that the LH and FSH levels will be high because it's like that pulsatile GnRH has started. It started to stimulate LH and FSH secretion, and that's trying to stimulate the testicles, but the testicles aren't working. Um, so those LH and FSH levels will be really high um, if there is a problem with the testicles. Um, and that's what we would call hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. 
So one, one question I have is, you know, I'm in my general pediatrics office and, you know, I, I, I always hate poking my kids, you know, for blood. Like how quickly should I worry about like doing this? Like, should I pull the trigger right away? Like uh, they're at their annual wellness at 14 and we're like, ah, oh, this is delayed puberty. I just need to get those labs right now. Or is this something where, all right, well, let's come back in like three months and six months and see how things are going. Like, like how, how worried should I be and what should trigger me to actually start this type of workup? Yeah, I think, um, you know, truly in any, um, in any boy over 14, I would go ahead and send, send the blood work. You know, that is like officially when we would call it delayed. And, um, I don't, you know, it's kind of like, it doesn't seem like there'd be much of a benefit to waiting longer or kind of reason to think that things would necessarily change much in three to six months. Um, you know, I think a lot of times, um, if kids are coming in when they're maybe 13 and, you know, even then, like a lot of their peers may have started going through puberty. And so they may be kind of in this similar situation. Um, you know, at 13, um, especially if there's kind of a family history of delayed puberty, you know, it's pretty common that, that, that does run in the family then, um, you know, and they're, if they're not having any other concerning signs, then I think it would be reasonable to wait, you know, three to six months and kind of see if things start on their own. You know, I think the, the biggest thing that we worry about with delayed puberty is if there is, you know, something in the brain that's kind of affecting the whole pituitary gland. So, you know, worst case scenario, something like a brain mass, um, you know, that is like affecting all of the pituitary function. Um, and so those are kind of the other things to look out for. Like, are they, um, you know, have they stopped growing completely, which would make us worry about growth hormone deficiency? Are they having signs of hypothyroidism, which is also controlled by the pituitary gland? You know, and so if there are other concerns like that, then, you know, it makes sense to just go ahead and get the the lab workup then. But if everything else seems okay, and it's only puberty that hasn't started, you know, and they're under 14, then it may be reasonable to wait until, you know, to see if things start on their own by 14. You know, I think one of the early things that uh, one of the first things I would say parents or even patients come up to me with, especially at this age is, is less of, you know, I think it's really less of the, oh, you know, I don't have like facial hair, but more of a I'm not as tall as everyone else. Can you explain sort of how growth and stature and maybe even bone age, how that sort of works together? Yes, absolutely. And and I would agree that is usually like our chief complaint is not that, you know, people don't come in saying I haven't started puberty, you know, especially boys, I would say, um, you know, for a variety of reasons, but in our culture, you know, height um, is often uh, emphasized more in, in boys compared to girls. And, and so this is a very common thing where kids come in at this age and they're worried about their height. Um, but, you know, oftentimes puberty happening later is, is kind of the primary driver of that. Um, and so generally before puberty starts, um, kids kind of grow at a steady rate, um, you know, somewhere between like five to six centimeters a year is pretty typical for growth velocity before puberty. And then after puberty starts and kind of during the second half of puberty, that's when kids often have their pubertal growth spurt um, and their growth rate um, can almost double to like eight to 10 centimeters per year. Um, and so um, I think especially during this time when some kids have started having their growth spurt um, and increasing their growth velocity a lot, the kids that haven't started going through puberty and haven't had that growth spurt, um, you know, there's a pretty big difference in, in height there. And so I think this is just when that height difference becomes very noticeable um, and becomes a lot more worrisome for, for kids and for parents. You know, so I think when, um, when 
kind of assessing for issues with growth or issues with puberty, a bone age is very helpful because often the progression of the bone age is more associated with kind of the stage in puberty, um, even more so than somebody's chronological age. So these hormones of puberty, um, like estrogen especially, but also testosterone um, and when testosterone gets converted to estrogen, those are the hormones that cause the growth plates to mature um, and then eventually to close. And so when we read the bone age, it's really kind of comparing um, how open those growth plates are um, based on kind of these standard ages that we have. Um, so for somebody who is, you know, say 14 years old, um, if they have had kind of typical timing of puberty, they are probably having like their main growth spurt, you know, at 14, but also their growth plates are really maturing and getting very close to being closed because usually once that growth spurt is done, then those growth, you know, then the growth plates are closed. And, but for somebody who hasn't started puberty yet, um, even if their age is 14, you know, their bone age may be closer to like an 11 or 12 year old. And so they may still have a couple of years left to grow and their growth plates may still be, be very open. And so the bone age can be helpful in that way to kind of assess the growth potential and kind of seeing if that matches up with their puberty stage. Can you describe a little more about exactly how bone ages are done? Are they which which bones do they take pictures of? Can any radiologist do this? Should it be done by a pediatric radiologist who can read them, or does someone does or or does, does the endocrinologist read them? Like who, yeah. I just remember, I've when I was a resident, we we would get it, and then they'd always like dust off the book in the corner that has all the bone age stuff, yeah. and then they're like comparing them, and it was done both in endocrinology and in radiology when I was in rotations. Can you describe yes. that a little more? Oh, so the bone. Age- x-ray is probably like the least scientific part of anything we do in endocrinology. So it's a it's an x-ray of the left hand. And we're looking at uh, sort of all of the bones that are visible. So um, there are growth plates in, uh, you know, the distal radius in the metacarpal bones and then in the phalanges also. Um, and so those are all of the, the bones that we're looking at and the growth plates in those. And um, basically we have that dusty book that sits in a corner or, you know, on our bookshelf. Um, and the, the book is just, uh, you know, a standard bone age, like a random hand that they've chosen and made their standard for each age. Um, and so all we're doing is comparing the, you know, the bones and the growth plates of the patient's image to the bones and the growth plate in the book and seeing which one it matches up most closely with. And so it is usually, um, I would say, you know, probably pediatric endocrine or pediatric radiologists have more experience than adult radiologists reading these because I don't think you would ever get a, a bone age x-ray in an adult because their growth plates are, are all closed. Um, and, um, you know, even so, depending on, on where you're practicing, the, the pediatric radiologist may not read very much of them. And so, um, as endocrinologists, we are always taught to, you know, read the bone age ourselves, um, and can, you know, just kind of verifying the results. Um, because sometimes there are some differences between like the, you know, the distal phalanges and the metacarpal bones. And so, um, sometimes they can be read a little bit differently. Um. And so is it fair to think of the bone age as the body's response to the testosterone, to the or to the uh, uh, donatal hormones? Is that 
like how it can be thought of in the in the axis or is that am I off base? Yeah, yeah, I would say that's a good way to, to think of it. There are other hormones that, um, you know, that can affect the growth plates and cause maturation of the growth plates, like things like thyroid hormone, growth hormone, um, you know, can also affect those. Um, but estrogen is really the, you know, the primary hormone that will cause the growth plates to actually close. Um, and so, um, yeah, so I would say that is a, a good way to think of it. And so this has been a great way, I think, to kind of approach uh, thinking about a patient that uh, we're concerned for delayed puberty and checking to see if there's a cause in the hypothalamus, checking to uh, with the uh, LH and FSH production, checking to see if there's an issue in the gonads based on the uh, corresponding hormone, and then also even if there's kind of a separate issue with the hormones affecting bone age. When you Can you walk us through kind of maybe the differential at each lesion or if there are Net steps is I imagine uh, if there's low LH and FSH, are we now brain MRI and everyone? You know, what are kind of the thoughts of of um, each area and what are some of the diagnosis maybe associated at each stage? Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, kind of starting with the, the hypothalamus pituitary, um, the, the most, you know, the most common cause is, um, constitutional delay in growth and puberty, like I mentioned. And so, um, you know, sometimes if we have a kid that doesn't have any other concerning features, um, you know, or, or anything else, yeah, any other concerning symptoms, then we may watch and wait a little bit. Um, we may actually do kind of a trial of giving a little bit of testosterone to kind of, stimulate puberty to start, you know, the, the theory is sort of that once the body has seen some testosterone, then it kind of kicks into gear and starts like recognizing that it needs to start making it. And so sometimes doing like a three to six month um, course of low dose testosterone can actually get the body to start, um, you know, to start making its own puberty hormones. And then, um, the, you know, there are some other sorts of like hormonal stimulation testing that can be done, um, you know, to help kind of identify, um, issues if there's not a clear cause kind of in the original testing. But a lot of times, you know, if, um, if puberty hasn't started and especially if we've done that sort of testosterone, um, trial for three to six months and puberty still isn't starting, then a brain MRI is often the next best step to just ensure that there's not, um, you know, some sort of mass or lesion or problem with the pituitary gland um, that is is causing that. And so, yeah, I would say kind of the, you know, differential for pituitary issues would be, um, you know, a, a brain mass um, or some sort of tumor. Um, and then there's also these um, genetic things like Kalman syndrome, you know, as this patient is, uh, is named after potentially, um, <laughs> where, um, you know, where kids are born without the uh, ability to make um, GnRH and, and therefore stimulate puberty. Um, Kalman syndrome is often also a associated with anosmia, so inability to smell. Um, and so that is another um, question that could be asked. And, and sometimes that can be seen in the brain MRI as well, that they are missing their olfactory bulbs. Mm. Now, I assume if we're doing these testosterone, uh, these testosterone trials and MRI, or this is probably after a referral to pediatric endocrinology, or do we should we expect general pediatricians to even order the MRI? Like, it's is that expected? Or no, not? I would 
let's say like for a kid who is over 14 and hasn't had any signs of puberty, um, you know, I think getting those initial labs, the LH, FSH, and testosterone is really helpful. Um, but then, you know, after after that, I think referring to a pediatric endocrinologist is really reasonable. Um, and um, yeah, because I think once you get into, you know, kind of thinking about the MRI or the testosterone trial like that, um, I would say is not something I would expect a, you know, a primary care provider to be doing. I always refer after the first MRI and testosterone <laughs> injection. If that if that doesn't go oh, well, okay. that's yeah. I, I usually punt after that. Um, yeah. All right. Did you have something else to say about that? Yeah, I was just going to talk a little bit about issues with the testicles. That's kind of the be, bet, yeah, yeah. The next. I would love to hear more about like the hypogonadism <laughs> uh, uh, differential lesion. Yes. Yeah. So so when it's a problem with the pituitary um, hypothalamus, that's what we call hypogonadotropic hypogonadism. So you're not making the um, the LH and FSH. But then if it's a problem with the testicles, that's hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. So usually on the labs, the LH and FSH would be really high, um, but the testosterone level is still low. Um, and so the, um, you know, the one of the main causes uh, in boys of that would be Klinefelter syndrome. So that's where you have 47XXY chromosomes. Um, and one of the issues that the is that the testicles don't function properly and, and can't make uh, sufficient testosterone. And so often what we'll see in Klinefelter syndrome is that um, there is some progression of puberty and often they have normal adrenarchy. So, you know, it probably presents a little bit differently than, than this kid. Like I would expect maybe some pubic hair, you know, maybe this is the kid that sort of got to like Tanner stage three puberty, but then never progressed. So, you know, that's where this, that maybe could be helpful to kind of know the different stages. Um, and then one of the classic features is that the testicles are are smaller than expected. So they may be having some of those other changes of puberty, like pubic hair, body hair, you know, even voice deepening, um, but their testicles are still very small. So that's kind of the main thing to look out there, you know, for that. Um, and then other- like, like how small, like early puberty or like childhood yeah. or- like just just small for age. I yeah, don't know, I like. would say you know it could be anywhere. I want to say like um, six to yeah, like maybe four to six or around six cc's is kind of what sticks in my in my mind. So yeah, so maybe more like that early puberty um, stage, and but not necessarily prepubertal. Um, Sorry for interrupting. No, 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 that's a that's a great a great question. Yeah, and then the you know the other causes of um, of uh, hypergonadotropic hypogonadism is um, you know if patients have a history of uh, like chemotherapy treatments, a lot of times those can um, can affect uh, the testicles and um, and their ability to produce testosterone. So um, that would be another potential cause. So this is great. And so let's, uh, would love to dive into uh, a second case that we have at Case Lake Children's Hospital. This is Natasha Albright. She's a seven-year-old healthy female presenting to the pediatrician's office because mom's concerned that she has some hair growth. Mom states over the last few months, she's noticed um, some growth of axillary hair, some slight pubic hair. And sure enough, on our growth chart, she is 99th percentile weight for her age um, and has always really been in the upper limits of her growth curve since infancy. Uh, on exam, you do see some breast buds bilaterally, which mom didn't really notice and just thought it was kind of normal for her her body habitus. But essentially, we have a seven-year-old where there's some concerns for for early puberty, which I think I've seen you know quite frequently. And and maybe before even diving into it, we're very much in uh, wanting to talk about issues of disparities, health disparities, racial inequities. 
um, and the role that that race sometimes inappropriately plays in medicine. And I have, you know, in some of these cases, if you go to the up to date page, it'll say precocious puberty. If they're, you know, if they're black, seven is fine, um, which obviously does not make that much sense as we know that race is not a uh, genetic tie. So maybe before even diving into this, could you help kind of reconcile some of the racial disparities that are a part of this precocious puberty diagnosis? Yes, that is is a great um, a great thing to to discuss. And you know, the first thing to know is that um, the kind of data that we have on you know kind of like typical ages of of puberty. Um, you know, especially as they differ between different um, racial and ethnic groups. Um, this is all like observational data, essentially. Um, and so there, you know, there has been some observational data that show that, you know, some groups, um, especially, uh, you know, I think the main study was looking at female non-Hispanic black patients who did have on average earlier ages of uh, menarche compared to white non-Hispanic groups. And so, you know, there is some of that observational data showing that, you know, that kind of the average age can be younger. I, I think the challenge of kind of just kind of reclassifying that as like a different normal age for different groups is challenging because, you know, on the one hand, there are real like pathological things that can cause precocious puberty. And so we certainly wouldn't want to miss that in in different groups just because of somebody's race or ethnicity. You know, at the same time, a lot of times earlier puberty can just be kind of a variant of normal or what we call like idiopathic precocious puberty. So we wouldn't necessarily want to do like this million dollar workup on somebody who doesn't really need it. And so you know, so I think it's just kind of important to one, like know that there is some variation in kind of typical timing of puberty um, among different groups, um, but also kind of know like what with the standard definition of precocious or delayed puberty are. And I think just kind of having a good enough understanding to know when to be concerned about a specific patient, like outside of, you know, their race and, and ethnicity. And are, is there any data that like environmental triggers? Like, I feel like a lot of toxic stress is associated with you know some of these uh, disparities, rather than any genetic cause, but you know, environmental, societal, yes. patriarchal, <laughs> racial, uh, racist, uh, systemic issues. It, does that play a role here? Yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is like probably you know there's no way to know for sure, and I think that's because. We still don't know exactly what causes puberty to start. And so it's hard to really pinpoint like what may cause it to start earlier or later. There have been some studies looking, um, yeah, looking at like chronic stress or even, you know, things that we know potentially cause earlier puberty or things like, um, when, when babies are born premature or small for gestational age. You know, we think that like, leads to some sort of stress on the body that potentially can cause earlier puberty. Um, and so I think along those lines, it is reasonable to think that other forms of chronic stress would cause the same, you know, the same type of thing. There's also been some data looking at like endocrine disruptors and, you know, a lot of the newer research about like the chemicals that are out there that are potentially affecting, um, you know, uh, just our, our hormones and hormone production and, and whether that potentially could be related to puberty timing as well, which, you know, potentially could be leading to some of these, these differences in timing for different groups. That could be it. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, I think it's probably a mix of, uh, environmental, um, yeah, plus potentially some genetic factors too. This is great. It's, this is very helpful because it always seemed, um, 
surprising to me. And I think this is a very helpful way to, to reconcile. And so let's say that we are um, having this patient in front of us. We are a little, you know, feeling like seven years old is, is borderline early. There's some hair growth. There's some possible breast budding. What are concerns um, that make your, you know, kind of red flags go up or, or spidey senses go up when someone like you, who's an expert, is evaluating someone for precocious puberty? Yeah. So um, there's a couple of sort of categories. Um, one is really age. Um, and then the other one is the um, the sex of the person. So we know that people with ovaries who are assigned female at birth, um, it is much more common to have idiopathic precocious puberty. And, you know, generally puberty happens earlier in people with ovaries. And so um, it is much, you know, because it's much more common to have idiopathic precocious puberty and, and less common to have sort of a pathologic cause, um, I'm generally less concerned when it is somebody assigned female at birth that's having early puberty. Whereas if it was somebody with testicles assigned male at birth, um, you know, when puberty is happening earlier for that group, it's just more likely that it is, you know, there's some sort of cause for it. And so that makes me more concerned. The other thing is age. Um, so puberty starting early, um, which for, um, you know, for somebody assigned female at birth would be less than age eight. Um, if it's starting between ages six and eight, that is actually, you know, can be fairly typical and is most often um, idiopathic precocious puberty. Um, but if it starts before six, it's much more likely to be some sort of organic or pathologic cause. So um, so for somebody assigned female at birth, if it's starting before six, um, that is much more concerning to me. Uh, this is helpful. And then if you are starting to think these are early, this is even before six, we're seeing some hair growth confirmed. We're seeing some breast budding confirmed. Um, what is kind of the differential? What's the thought process that's going on in your head? Yeah. And so it's, um, you know, it's sort of similar to to the delayed puberty. I think, um, you know, the first thing, uh, again, is to kind of differentiate between adrenarchy and, um, and true puberty. So having um, just premature adrenarchy is generally what we call it, um, is much more common. So if there's only body odor, only pubic hair, you know, only some acne, um, that, you know, still generally, um, needs some sort of workup, but is, is usually less concerning than if there's true puberty with, um, breast development or any type of like menstrual bleeding, um, uh, you know, or for somebody assigned female or for somebody assigned male at birth, some testicular enlargement, um, you know, those would be much, much more concerning than if it was just atronarchy. Um, and then it's sort of the same, you know, the same differentiation where it could either be a problem with the pituitary gland, um, or it could be a problem with the ovaries um, or testicles or somewhere else in the body that's making estrogen or, or testosterone. So for the pituitary, you know, sometimes um, masses in the brain or, you know, tumors, um, they can either cause like complete pituitary dysfunction and lead to delayed puberty, or, you know, sometimes, especially if they're smaller masses can actually kind of stimulate the, you know, that system to turn on a little bit early. Um, and so I would say that's still kind of like the biggest thing that we worry about is some sort of, of mass in the brain that's causing um, early puberty development. And then, you know, for, like, from the gonad side, um, the other differential would be, yeah, if the, the, ovaries or testicles are kind of starting to produce estrogen or testosterone, 
um, without that stimulation um, from the the pituitary gland, um, and that can either be um, you know from some sort of uh, like genetic disorder or from a like a tumor in the the ovary or or testicle that is producing those hormones. So this is really helpful, and it sounds like kind of almost the same follow up of trying to localize the lesion and then kind of focus the next step there. Mm-hmm. Is the biggest concern about precocious puberty that there might be some type of cancerous mass that we're missing? Or are there other concerns that kind of play a role in uh, addressing and treating precocious puberty? Yeah, I would say, you know, that's kind of like the first concern is, you know, is there some sort of cancer or mass that is causing this that needs to be, um, you know, treated? Um, the other thing that we often worry about with precocious puberty is that it can affect height. Um, you know, so similarly, how we talked about in the last case that these puberty hormones lead to that growth spurt kind of during puberty, but then once puberty is done, um, then your growth um, is done. And so, you know, if you have somebody who starts puberty at age six and then, you know, kind of has that puberty happening for two to three years, they could be done growing by the time they're they're eight. Um, and so they may end up being much shorter than, you know, than average uh, or kind of, you know, than expected based on their genetics um, because of that. Um, and so I would say that's kind of another, um, you know, really important thing to look out for. Um, is that typically people who do have early puberty will have that increase in growth as well. Um, and so usually, you know, we'll, we'll see that these kids are kind of growing at like the 90, you know, fifth, 99th percentile, um, often for weight and height. Um, and then typically what happens is that they kind of stop growing a little bit earlier. But if they're already at that 99th percentile, you know, even if they stop growing earlier, they may end up like, you know, somewhere in the middle. Um, but the bigger concern is if somebody is starting to have puberty, but they haven't had that increase in growth, or they're, you know, if they're only growing at the 10th percentile, and then they stop growing when they're eight, they're going to be significantly shorter than their peers. Um, And I think that would also make me worry that there was some issue with the pituitary gland affecting, you know, growth hormone or thyroid hormone, if they're not having that increase in growth during puberty. So one one question I have is, um, and this may actually may may maybe relate more to the first case, but I, I think probably can be applicable to both is uh, when you're talking about, you, you talked about genetics a couple of times. And so my question is about talking about parents. And so I've definitely had like, oh, dad was a late bloomer. So, you know, kid can be a late bloomer or mom had precocious puberty or th- thought she had. So she was, everyone in the family is early. Like how much of that plays into this? Like, should we take that into account? Or is that something that we're like, well, you know, we have these norms that we're trying to, to stick with and, or, yeah, that's my basic question. I don't know where I was going with the end of that, but <laughs> you sort of understand what yeah, I'm asking, right? Yeah, definitely. And, and it definitely, I would say, plays into account a lot. And it's so, it's so important to ask, you know, like a lot of times, you know, moms are not necessarily just going to offer like when they started having their periods unless you specifically ask. And so, um, yeah, so those are, are definitely questions to ask everyone. Like when did mom have her first period? You know, yeah, for dads, it's a little bit harder sometimes to pinpoint an exact time, but asking like when, you know, when he had his growth spurt or when started developing facial hair and did it seem similar to peers? Um, and, um, you know, we do find that um, that timing of puberty can sort of run in families. Um, and so, you know, I think generally, like if, um, yeah, like for this case, you know, um, if this patient is seven years old and like everybody in the family, you know, kind of started having puberty signs around seven and they all ended up at, you know, pretty typical heights and like 
you know, that probably is going to be just kind of consistent with, with their family. It still is important to think about it and make sure you think about their, you know, their height and are there any other concerning symptoms. Um, but if not, then, you know, this may be a kid that doesn't necessarily need a lot of workup or, you know, or treatment for it. And, um, you know, and I would say kind of similarly thinking about kids who are, are late, you know, who have delayed puberty, if that is like really consistent with everybody else in their family, I would say, you know, there's probably more of a chance that they have kind of your typical constitutional delay in puberty. Um, but that's still a kid that I would want to like follow and make sure that puberty is happening and, you know, and make sure that their labs aren't showing something different. So, um, yeah. So I think it's important to know, but, um, but doesn't necessarily affect like what I would think of as kind of normal timing for, for puberty. Another question along the lines of the genetics. Um, how often do you find yourself sending for genetic testing or sending to a genetic counselor to talk about these types of things? Cause it seems like obviously when you, when I stay for my peds boards, like they seem to be like <laughs> yeah. all the time. Yeah. Right. But I, I don't think I've ever like actually diagnosed anyone or sent anyone to genetic testing. And it seems like the majority of these kids end up being okay. Yeah. It's really rare um, that we do genetic testing um, for puberty concerns. I would say, um, you know, the most common times that I would do it are um, for, uh, you know, for delayed puberty, if it is somebody that looks like they have hypogonadotropic hypogonadism, and I am potentially concerned about Kalman syndrome, um, there are a number of different genes that can cause Kalman syndrome. And some of them are associated with other uh, things like, you know, kidney disease or like other, you know, other things depending on the specific gene. And so um, sometimes it can be helpful to have a specific diagnosis so that you can know whether you need to be monitoring for, for these other things. Um, you know, outside of that, I think um, doing genetic testing to look for Klinefelter syndrome, if you have somebody um, with uh, hypergonadotropic hypogonadism, um, or for, um, you know, for a girl with delayed puberty, one of the things that we think of is Turner syndrome, where they can have um, ovarian dysfunction that can lead to hypergonadotropic hypogonadism. And so, um, you know, uh, those syndromes also have, you know, just other things associated with them that you would want to be aware of and monitor for. And so genetic testing can be really important in those cases. But otherwise, it is, um, yeah, is not something that that we do typically. So one of the big takeaways I feel like I'm getting is is very much whether it is precocious puberty or delayed puberty, identifying where it is on the pathway and kind of focus there. Um, the brain MRI seems like it's a clear net step for low FSH and LH, but maybe I'll, I'll hold that off for the for the endocrinologist to decide. One of the other core parts of the labs that you mentioned is kind of assessing some of the other uh, pituitary hormones, checking for thyroids uh, and TSH. How common are the spillover hormones? I don't, I don't know what you would say. Like if someone is presenting with a worrisome precocious puberty, or delayed puberty, are they often having those secondary signs? Are they would the brain MRI pretty much be negative unless they're also having some type of thyroid disease? Or how, how much overlap, I guess, is there from some of the other pituitary uh, pathologies and the uh, puberty pathologies? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, the to be honest, I've only found really a handful of kids that have actually had, you know, true like pituitary pathology. So like generally it is very rare. Great. In, in the kids that I have had, um, there was a, a kid fairly recently that had craniopharyngioma and had very delayed puberty, like, 
you know, 15 or 16. Also, like growth had really stopped, you know, it wasn't like, um, I think typically in sort of our constitutional delay in puberty, we see that growth continues, they just don't have that growth spurt. You know, his growth was really like had completely stopped, um, and was having these other symptoms of like fatigue and, you know, low energy, things like that. And so, um, and, um, you know, on his evaluation, he was not making any of his pituitary hormones. And so, you know, I think the ones that I've seen, it does seem, you know, kind of more clear, but at the same time, you know, because, even in kind of constitutional delay and growth in puberty, we do see the growth, you know, kind of decline from the growth chart a lot. And so sometimes it is just harder to, you know, to pick up. Um, but I would say when there is kind of a, a true, um, yeah, like tumor or mass in, in the brain, it does often affect these other other hormones, um, especially in delayed puberty. I think with precocious puberty, it's a little bit different because the more common tumors that we see are like hypothalamic hamartomas, which are really small and don't, you know, typically cause pituitary dysfunction. Um, or sometimes optic glioma is another um, another tumor. These are very rare. Um, and so they're not something that we often find in the, the brain MRIs. But when we do, um, you know, precocious puberty is, is often the only kind of sign that they're having. All right. So if we diagnose this kid with precocious puberty, what's like the next step? What do we do? What what will we see the the pediatric endocrinologist do? And when they follow up, we won't be super surprised at what's what's on their medication list or whatever else is going on. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, so the most common cause of precocious puberty is um, central precocious puberty, where it um, you know it's kind of the the pituitary has started making LH and FSH, um, which is leading to to precocious puberty. Um, and so the treatment that we have for that is what we call puberty blockers or GnRH agonists. Um, so it is an agonist where it um, is basically, um, you know, constantly stimulating the, um, the GnRH receptor. So it's kind of preventing that pulsatile stimulation. Um, and that kind of just set, shuts down the whole system. Um, you know, it's a reversible treatment. So when you stop it, the body kind of goes back to, to making the puberty hormones. Um, that, so that's the main treatment that we have for precocious puberty. Um, and so certainly when we have kids that are starting puberty really young, like, you know, five, um, six-year-olds, um, those kids will, will frequently be treated, um, with, uh, with GnRH agonists. Um, the, the older kids, you know, who are, um, six to, to eight, um, you know, treatment can be an option, but a lot of times it's not necessary. Um, you know, the, um, the main, and I think the main reason that people kind of think about treatment is to try to um, preserve height and make sure that that kids can reach kind of a an average final height. Um, but the data that we have in the six to eight year old group is not um, is not great, and so um, we actually, you know, it's kind of mixed. Like some studies show that it does help with final height, some studies show that it doesn't really help with final height. Um, and so for kids who are six to eight, you know, especially if they're not distressed by, by puberty, it doesn't seem to be progressing too quickly. Um, you know, there may not be a need to actually, um, start treatment with, with GnRH agonists, um, but it can be an option. And one thing maybe that we haven't talked about in too much, but I know I, uh, have to admit I had a, a friend asked me, uh, growth hormone, uh, in general. And I think in, in other cultures or in other medical systems, this is more commonly prescribed than it is in the United States. Can you talk a little bit about if there are indications for growth hormone, when those might occur? Yeah. And I think this comes up, especially, you know, in like the first case when there's delayed puberty, but really the biggest concern that people have is about height and, and growth. 
Um, so growth hormone is, you know, the main indication for growth hormone is growth hormone deficiency. So if somebody has a problem where their pituitary gland is not making growth hormone, then that would be the, the number one indication for growth hormone treatment. Um, you know, there, there are other, other reasons, but that's kind of the main time that we use it. Um, and so for somebody who has, um, you know, delayed puberty where their current height, you know, may be like low on the, the growth chart, but if they still have growth potential, you know, based on their bone age and based on kind of where they are in puberty, um, they're, once they're done with puberty and once they're done growing, you know, their height should end up at a, a typical point. So they really shouldn't need growth hormone to get there, you know, unless they have a problem where their body's not making growth hormone. Um, and so, um, you know, so growth hormone is not typically indicated in, in that case. And I would say, you know, with, precocious puberty, generally kids are, you know, are kind of taller than typical, like in, you know, at that current age. And so, you know, growth hormone isn't necessarily going to be helpful. And especially because it's not going to stop their growth plates from closing, right? And so the main way that we think we can kind of help them grow taller is by delaying that closure of the the growth plates. And I think it's just that the evidence is sort of mixed on whether the GnRH agonists will actually do that. But um, but kind of giving them more growth hormone during that time, you know, isn't necessarily going to help their growth in the long run. Um, so as we look at sort of wrapping up today, um, one question I sort of like to ask is sort of looking at the future of medicine. Um, and, you know, if there's there's nothing that you know of, fine, you can answer that. But, you know, in terms of like looking at puberty in the future, puberty, I don't know if that sounds right or not. But like, are there things like on the horizon that you could see that, that's been talked about? Like, is there a new type of bone age that'll be like automatically <laughs> computated by the, a computer? Or are there special types of, uh, of new medications that can be used for precocious puberty or something else? Like, is anything like that in the future that we should be expecting when we do our update episode in a couple of years? Um, you know, I would say the biggest thing that is um, sort of, you know, maybe coming up on the horizon is kind of thinking about these different like genes that are um, involved in like what causes puberty to start. I would say that's kind of the main like new thing that has been researched um, over the last several years. And they have started to identify some, you know, some of these genes um, that are involved in, in puberty starting. Um, you know, I think where, where it's at now, I don't know that it is necessarily, you know, kind of changing like our, evaluation or workup or treatment, um, you know, for puberty. But I think that, you know, down the road, being able to better identify what actually causes puberty to start, I think will make a big difference in kind of our understanding of it and, and potentially, you know, changes in our treatment down the line. And I've kind of recapped my uh, key learning points. Are there specific uh, take-home points that you think are really important for our listeners to walk away uh, from with, uh, with from this podcast? Yeah, I think, you know, the biggest things are like, know the typical timing of puberty, um, know what to look for on exam and make sure that you're actually doing an exam to look for those things. Um, and then, um, you know, and then I think just knowing that if you are concerned about early or late puberty, checking those hormone levels like the LH, FSH, testosterone or estradiol um, in the morning is kind of the best next step. Um, and then referring to a pediatric endocrinologist. All right. Um, so before we wrap up the episode, um, is there anything else you would like to add about puberty? 
Yeah, there's one more thing I wanted to say, um, and that's really just that it's so important to talk about puberty with kids. Um, you know, I think for a lot of kids, it can be really uncomfortable and embarrassing to talk about these changes that are happening to their body. And um, many kids won't talk about it unless you specifically ask about it. Um, and so it's so important to do that. And when you're talking about puberty, it's really important to talk about it in an inclusive way. So not only talking about, you know, for girls, this happens and for boys, this happens, but talking about, you know, people with ovaries and people with, with testicles and understanding that, um, you know, somebody's gender identity may not align with their sex assigned at birth. And so the puberty that may happen may be different from um, from their gender identity. And, you know, when puberty happens, that can be a great time to kind of um, just explore those, those questions um, with patients. And um, again, just to making sure that you're talking about puberty in, in an inclusive way um, that, uh, you know, that's comfortable for everyone. So that's all. Yeah, I did notice throughout the um, episode, you kind of use very inclusive language like um, patients or children with ovaries or uh, children with testes. And I I do appreciate that. I think that's a a good point to kind of uh, put it all together and bring everything home. So thank you so much. Awesome. Well, we are, again, so thankful for your, your time and expertise is uh, we'd also love to send listeners to anything you'd like to plug any any websites or groups or or things that uh, we should try to uh, point our listeners into that direction. Yeah, I feel like I already put in my plug for that uology book, which uh, Jelena had on hand. So I feel like that's been my yeah my biggest uh, most recent helpful resource for awesome. everyone. We will link to the show notes. Thank you again. This has been wonderful. A great episode. Yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. This has been another episode of the Cripsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly knowledge food formula feeds newsletter at our website at www.thecripsiders.com. We're committed to providing you with high-value practice change and knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecryptsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Dr. Jelena Castillo, our executive producer for this episode, Dr. Nick Lee, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Tonight, I have been Justin Lee Burke. And I'm Jelena Castillo. And this has been Chris, the Chimanchu. Thank you. Good night. See y'all. Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education to the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim your credit after listening to this episode.